Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Kirk Hansen. I'm Senior Fellow at the Markula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University and an Emeritus faculty member at Stanford Graduate School of Business. I'm also a member of the Commonwealth Club's Silicon Valley Advisory Board and will be your moderator for today's session. As the club continues to host virtual events, we're grateful for the continued support of our members and donors. Visit www.commonwealthclub.org to learn more about the membership or support the club right now with a tax-deductible gift by clicking the blue Donate button on your screen. Now, it's my pleasure to welcome to the Commonwealth Club again, Cass Sunstein, the Robert Walmsley University Professor at Harvard University and author of Liars, Falsehoods and Free Speech in an Age of Deception. Cass is a noted legal and public policy expert, the author of many books on public policy, and served in the admin as the administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs in the Obama administration. Later, he worked on the President's Review Board on Intelligence and Communication and Technologies and on the Pentagon's Defense Innovation Board. Cass has very recently joined the Department of Homeland Security as a senior counselor, as the senior counselor focused on immigration policy. We are not able to talk about that today. We understand, Cass. Um, we're getting a late start today because uh, Professor Sunstein was called into a meeting in Homeland Security at the last minute. So thank you for getting, still fitting this in, Cass. Um, I'm delighted to be hosting this and asking questions of you. I want to state at the outset, I'm not a lawyer, and so I will learn uh, about your observations about how the law deals with the issues you discuss in the book, uh, just like many of our viewers and, and listeners will be looking at. Um, I'd like to, to start with a general question. Uh, your book is a plea for greater freedom to regulate lies and untruths in uh, free speech um, and for stronger action by private parties, including Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, I think you've been a consultant to Facebook uh, in the in the past. Um, why is this a different time? Let's start there. Why do you think? What from your public policy sense? Why is this a different time to be concerned about truth and lies? Well, uh, there are a lot of falsehoods out there that are causing people to sacrifice their health, their economic well-being, their safety that are destroying people's reputation, that are making it harder for democracy to work well, that the power of a liar or an innocent purveyor of falsehoods to reach approximately five zillion people is greater than it has ever been in human history. And that is sometimes entertaining. You can say the moon is made out of Swiss cheese, that's not that entertaining, but it's mildly entertaining, it's not dangerous. Um, but there are things that are, uh, if they're entertaining, they're also um, very worrisome from the standpoint of everything we should care about. 
is is social media then the the primary motivator for why we should be looking at this again from a public policy standpoint? Is it the greater damage that can be done through uh, the broad distribution dissemination on social media? The focus on what lies do that's bad. They can cause people to take medicines that don't work or not to take medicines that do work. They can cause people to take risks that it's foolish to take. They can cause people to hate one another or to be destroyed in some way by the purveying of falsehoods. And the uh, vehicle that is responsible for these terrible things, it could be a newspaper, it could be a website, it could be a social media platform. I wouldn't want to say that it's principally, you know, Twitter or that Reddit is the source of it. I'd rather say more that in the era of uh, technological amazingness, which is responsible for many wonderful things, there's also a heightened risk that lies and falsehoods can do very great harm. There are two other hypotheses I've seen mentioned. One is that it's uh, in part due to the activity of state actors and the fact that a, a Russia uh, attempt at disinformation or a Chinese effort or other countries uh, changes the game. Is it, does that change the game of thinking about free speech? I think it's important, but um, falsehoods and lies uh, have always been a, a dangerous thing. So if you go back to the Garden of Eden, the serpent had some things to say that weren't truthful and uh, that were very damaging and harmful. If you go back to any culture, there will be tales rooted in human truth about what falsehoods do to tear us apart from one another and also to cause uh, terrible things to happen. So the damage done by falsehoods is as as old as our species, basically. And I wouldn't want to say as kind of point number one, falsehoods are more dangerous in 2021 than they were in 1902. I would want to say that whether we're in 1902 or 2021 or 1648, the problem of falsehoods causing economic and other kinds of harm, uh, destroying lives, uh, hurting families and children, that's that's a real problem. And, and what are we going to do about it? Mm -hmm. And um, I guess the question is, are there more lies being told today? Another hypothesis, of course, is that this is an artifact of the last four years, our greater concern with lies. Uh, are there more lies being told today? Yeah, this is an empirical question. So what we want to do to answer that empirical question is aggregate the number of lies told in, let's say, 2004 and compare that to the number in 2019. As amazing as our empirical tools are, I don't think we have empirical tools that can answer that question. So it is true that in freedom-loving societies going way back, 
certain forms of lies have not been protected by the free speech principle, even when there was one. So perjury is not protected by the free speech principle. If I tell you buy my book and the chance that you'll get cancer goes down to zero, that's fraud. That's not protected by the free speech principle. If I run off to the authorities and say my neighbor, I'm going to look at my neighbor's house right now, he has a uh, cocaine ring that he is, is that such, is there such a term as cocaine ring? Probably not. He's selling cocaine. I tell the authorities that. That's, I believe, false. Seems, I just moved to DC. Seems like a nice guy, my neighbor. Mm -hmm. I don't believe he's selling cocaine. If I went to the authorities and lied about that, that would be a crime. So those things are longstanding exceptions, let's call them, to the free speech principle that in one or another form, the most robust systems of free expression have said, okay, you've got me there. That one's not protected by the free speech principle. So I think what's good to do is to get clarity on what we protect and what we don't protect, then to get a sense of why, and then to ask whether our reasons are good enough if they are good enough, then to ask, well, how do they apply to, let's say, new situations where a, a politician maybe is saying, I won the Medal of Honor, when that's a lie? How do we handle that? Or if a politician says, my opponent, you know, spent seven years in jail for something terrible. Suppose that's false. Is that protected by the free speech principle? A fair question to ask. You, if, if I understood your argument about the workings of the Supreme Court and the law over the history of the United States, the, the protection of false statements has generally not been uh, a predominant concern. And the kind of free speech uh, exceptions and focus that we've had in the last few years is, is somewhat new in jurisprudence history. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, so there are some things in like a nation's history that are jaw-dropping, and you just referred to one that is jaw-dropping, that the Supreme Court said basically forever that false statements of fact are not protected by the free speech principle. Now, that can't be entirely true if you say on a date to someone who you're trying to impress, you know, I was first in my class when you were actually second in your class. Mm -hmm. The idea that that can be criminalized seems a little wild. Mm -hmm. um, and so the idea that false statements, if I say something about climate change, let's suppose that I is sincerely held, but it turns out not to be true. And I exaggerate or underestimate where the science is. Can that be made a crime? Let's hope and maybe pray not. So the idea that false statements of fact are, are not protected by the free speech principle, that could never have been entirely true. So it was itself a false statement. So now we're getting a little metaphysical here. But the Supreme Court said it many, many times. It wasn't until 1964 that the Supreme Court used the free speech principle, and this is, I think, jaw-dropping, as a kind of battering ram against the longstanding law of libel. And what the Supreme Court said in 1964 is, you know, if you're talking about public figures, it could be a national leader, it could be a singer, it could be Taylor Swift, it could be an actor, it could be Connie Britton, the great star of Friday Night Lights and many other shows. If you say something that is uh, false about them, you're protected by the free speech principle unless you knew you were lying. 
But if you said something terrible, let's say, about Taylor Swift or Connie Britton or about uh, a senator, uh, that's protected by the free speech principle. And that hadn't been thought to be true until 1964. Now, the protection isn't absolute, but it's very, very broad. And a lot of people have been recently troubled by that, where you lie about you know, someone famous and that person can't do anything about it, which is bad for the famous person, and that is a harm, but it's also bad for the rest of us who may end up thinking that our mayor or our governor or someone we might vote for is basically a horror show when that's not true. They're perfectly good. And what was said was, let's say, not knowingly false, but it was, sure was false. Mm -hmm. And so we, we set that particular decision was... New York Times versus uh, Sullivan, is that correct? Yeah, 1964, and it's become so iconic that mm -hmm. to raise a question whether the court quite got it right is in a way like saying that, I don't know, apple pie isn't good or we ought to change the national anthem. It's really inappropriate to say that, but I'm saying it. It's not clear the, national, the New York Times against Sullivan got it entirely right. So to, to simplify things, suppose someone says in a very public way something that is false about someone who's kind of famous. And let's suppose the person didn't know it was false, but made a damaging error. And suppose the person says, you know what, you ought to correct the record and you ought to pay me a nickel. Mm -hmm. In my view, the idea that the First Amendment prohibits the person who's been liable from saying, tell the public what you said wasn't true, if they can demonstrate it wasn't true, and pay me a nickel, basically just a symbolic punishment. Is that such a terrible thing for a system of free expression? That's not at all clear. Let me, let me just say that as I read your book, my sense was this uh, looked like a first draft of an am amicus brief for the Supreme Court the next time they have to face one of these difficult cases in this space. Uh, is that part of your thinking, is that there is a rethinking going on of this kind of concern? Yeah, I, I think 39 drafts of the book. So if it reads like the first draft of an advocate brief. <laughs> so excuse me, the 39th draft of an advocate brief. <laughs> 39. So, I, 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 you know, I'm a lawyer, so I've worked on briefs in my career. This was more meant as just trying to figure stuff out yeah. and not necessarily for lawyers and judges, but for all of us to figure out what our, our culture and system are like. But so we talked about New York Times against Sullivan. Now let's jump forward to this century where in 2012, the example I gave of someone saying he won the Medal of Honor when he didn't, I didn't make that up. Someone who was running for office said, I won the Medal of Honor. And there's a, a law that says that's illegal. That's a crime. Mm -hmm. It's called stolen valor. The idea is you can't say you won the Congressional Medal of Honor. And the Supreme Court said that's protected by the free speech principle. I, I go back and forth between saying, thinking to myself, the Supreme Court it was reasonable, but probably wrong, and thinking it wasn't reasonable, it was crazy. Hmm. But let's be in that kind of mood. The Supreme Court said a democracy can't protect itself against people falsely claiming that they won one of the nation's highest honors. The American people can't say you are not allowed to lie that you won the Congressional Medal of Honor. Mm -hmm. 
that's what we need to have as part of our free speech principle? That's not clear. You can see the idea that if you're a journalist or an ordinary person, you say something, let's say, about climate change or about president and you happen to make a mistake, you can't be punished for that. I, I get that. You need to make a lot of breathing space for innocent and even negligent errors. But if someone knowingly claims, I won the Congressional Medal of Honor, when they didn't, on what principle of freedom do we say that that's at the core of what the American Revolution was fought for? Let me let me flip that argument, because I thought it was very interesting in the book. You argued about how lies can undermine democracy or the lack of trust uh, through a lot of lying can undermine democracy. What in that case of the stolen valor uh, case where the courts ruled that it, you couldn't penalize somebody for claiming that, how does that threaten democracy? Okay, so we think, and I think this is a good thought, that we need to allow a lot of breathing space for falsehoods in order to allow democracy to flourish. So if someone says climate change is so bad, we're all going to burn up in six months, that's false, I'm pleased to say, that shouldn't be punished, that's part of democratic debate. If someone says climate change isn't real, it's a conspiracy idea by crazy people who want to increase government power. That's also false, in my view. Um, but to criminalize that would be inconsistent with what a democracy needs to allow, which is robust debate. But if someone says, let's say, about a candidate for public office, uh, they were uh, engaged with terrorists because they are uh, disrespectful of our country and they wanted to lose to terrorists, and that is knowingly false, let's say. Something like that was said, knowing that it was false. That is an infringement on democracy. It makes it very hard for that political process to work well because one of the candidates has been lied about in a way that's very hard to get out of your head. If you hear that a political candidate was you know, engaged with in a sympathetic way with terrorists, even if that's corrected, it's very hard to get that out of your head. It kind of puts a, a cloud of uh, menace over that person's face. The idea that democracy requires protection of a knowing falsehood about a candidate for political office, a knowing falsehood about a candidate for political office is inconsistent with what we might call the internal morality of democracy, where the internal morality is we're going to fight fair, maybe we're going to fight tough, we're going to fight fair, and we're not going to make up things about one another. We might characterize one another in ways that are in, in our political self-interest. It's just to make up a lie. That's not good for democracy. And I'm, by the way, this is one of the least original thoughts you've ever heard. This is a thought that goes way back to uh, England, our uh, our forebears who helped design our, our principles of freedom of speech and uh, not as robust as ours, but they helped design the tradition out of which ours emerged. And they thought exactly what I'm saying. I'm kind of quoting them, though they were mm -hmm. more eloquent. Now, now, one of the things you you made the counter arguments, I thought, quite well uh, in your in your book. You you say one of the concerns, of course, is that you can't trust the political officials or authorities or maybe state legislatures to decide what constitutes uh, fact 
uh, lies and truths, and that there's going to be a political bias in that, depending on who's who's got the the administration in power or the local government in power. Uh, how, how can this be reconciled with that concern? Okay, so I'll, I'll uh, thank you for that question, and I'll give you a confession, mm-hmm. which is that when I started the book, I wanted it to be a manifesto about the need to allow democracies and private institutions like Facebook and Twitter to act much more aggressively to protect this nation and other nations against the uh, baleful and sometimes devastating harms of falsehoods and lies. So it was going to be a manifesto. And as I started writing it, I was talking to uh, a university press, Oxford Press, and a commercial press, which shall not go named. And the commercial press said, we love the manifesto idea. And Oxford University Press, the academic press said, we want you to write the book that you think is the best book. And the commercial press offered, you know, lots of bookstores and uh, more publicity than an academic press can offer. They offer bookstores and plenty of publicity, but commercial press is, is is an engine on that count. But the more I thought about it, the more the idea of a manifesto just seemed false. And that would be ironic for a book which is about truth and falsehood. Mm -hmm. That to trust government generally to be right about what's true is to run up against at least 20th century and 19th and 18th century too lessons where government will often have uh, its own motives or its own beliefs, which can't be trusted. So the fear of the truth police, George Orwell's maybe largest enduring lesson, the fear of- Or Chinese or uh, Myanmar or whatever authoritarian government you might want to cite today. Completely. So there there are examples all over the world of governments, communist governments, other governments that don't respect freedom, invoking the idea of lies and falsity as a reason not to prevent lies and falsities, but to protect their own power. And that lesson uh, kind of got firmer and firmer in my head as I did the book. So the book became... Uh, against my wishes in some ways, a uh, maybe 21st century restatement of John Stuart Mill's um, emphatic plea for allowing freedom of speech, even in situations in which said is not true. And Mill had a lot of things to say that I think we should uh, recognize, maybe the deepen the foundations of today, about how if you see something that's false, and what you yourself believe will become not a dead dogma, but a living truth. Mm-hmm. If you hear something that's false, you learn about what fellow, your fellow citizens say. That's really important. If you hear things that are false, you won't give them the kind of magnetic attraction that they get if they were censored. Mm-hmm. You expose them to the light, and they might evaporate. So those, those things are essential truths for nations to embrace and make new in their own. Mm-hmm. And that became against my wishes in a way. Mm-hmm. Maybe the principal theme of the book. 
And yet, what I originally wanted to write, which was a manifesto, that became the kind of uh, counterpoint of the book, saying that, look, if on Facebook someone says, please don't get vaccinated, the vaccines will give you a heart attack. Uh, does Facebook have to allow that? Absolutely not. If someone says on Twitter, you better vote between the hours of 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. because the polls are going to close at 1 p.m. And that's false. Does Twitter have to allow that? Absolutely not. If someone says something about cigarettes, you know that uh, the association between cigarettes and lung cancer is unproven, and please uh, light up, uh, that's a somewhat harder one. We could discuss exactly why, but the idea that that's definitely protected against let's say social media platforms own principles of freedom and harm prevention, that's, that's not at all obvious. Mm -hmm. So given what is, I think, a, a very balanced kind of treatment of this, I, I found validation on both sides, the concern about authoritarian governments and yet the concern about the real damage that can be done. Uh, what kinds of statements are you most worried about protecting? Or what are the lies that you most want to legitimize regulating or banning? Where, where do you come down on the, on the greatest threats, if you like, to the way the, the public discussion takes place? I'd have two top tiers. The first is health and safety, and the second is democracy. Mm -hmm. So th that domain of falsehoods, which spread and make people lose their lives, that really worries me. And uh, Facebook has, I'm not going to get the, as of now, terminology precisely right, but something like imminent risk to public health. That's, that's a good foundation for, let's say, private institutions, restrictions on speech. If you're told, you know, inject this into your arm with a syringe and boy are you going to be safe from the pandemic and it's false uh to take that down is is completely reasonable because the health risk is imminent and serious so too with issues of safety things that are designed let's say with falsehoods to get people to engage in self-harm uh mill's beautiful essay on liberty it looks a little abstract and high-minded <laughs> where you're thinking of, let's say, someone you know, who maybe their life is at risk. Yeah. So health and safety I put right at the top, but I think Facebook and Twitter need to think a lot more and a lot better, though they've made a lot of progress over the last years, about protection of health and safety. Also, governments need to do exactly the same. And it might be that the censor or not question is so 20th century and the 21st century question is, what kind of freedom-preserving tools might we have that can also at least achieve some of the health or safety goals? For, so for some things, what might be said is not they have to take it down, but they have to have a label that says it's false, or that they have to reduce circulation, as some social media platforms do for falsehoods, rather than taking it down, just doesn't show up so much on people's newsfeed. So that's health and safety number one. With respect to democracy, things around voting and voting processes that are false, mm -hmm. uh, to say that the First Amendment or the free speech principle 
requires protection of a statement, let's say to minority communities, don't bother to vote, you're not going to be allowed when that's false. Mm -hmm. Not at all clear that a private entity should permit that and not at all clear even that a government should permit that. And with respect to other things that involve democracy, uh, lies about candidates, and I'm saying talking about lies, not falsehoods, I'm not sure that we should give as broad protection as we do now. So I'm going back and forth with examples. Uh, the last chapter of the book that I wrote is actually, I confess, what's the right way to put it? The one I dislike least, or maybe, <laughs> maybe I can actually confess, it's my, my personal favorite, which is, I think it's the first chapter one, and it's a framework, and it's really short. Mm -hmm. And I did it almost at the last minute, I needed it. And I didn't know I needed it. A friend of mine said, do you have a framework? And I said, oh gosh, I, I think I do. And he helped me write it. And it says, there are really four questions you wanna ask. You wanna ask, what's the statement of mind of the actor, or the speaker? If you know you're lying, if you say my neighbor is sells cocaine, that's a lot different from an innocent mistake. And so intentional lies are more regulable than innocent mistakes. Second, how bad's the harm? Is it a case where you maybe can get someone you're dating to like you a little better than she should? That's a harm, but it's not as much of a harm as in a case when you get people, let's say, not to buckle their seatbelts under conditions in which they really should. How much harm are we talking about? Third question is, what's the magnitude? What's the likelihood of the harm? Is the harm 90% likely? Is it 40% likely? Is it 20% likely? That really matters, and I'm basically done. Fourth question is, how imminent is the harm? Is the harm tomorrow, or is it uh, 2024? If it's 2024, I think it's fairer to say, let the debate work itself out, that we have years by which the falsehood, let's say it's about air pollution or about uh, some chemical, someone saying something that's not true, the harm, let's just stipulate, isn't going to occur soon. Let people talk it through. Don't have censorship, have more speech. Yeah. Let me just uh, point out for our listeners that you have a wonderful chart uh, in the book, in chapter one, uh, page 14, in which you present the, these uh, four by four matrix, uh, your framework, and very useful in arguing if it falls in these particular boxes, then the Supreme Court ought to be thinking about um, tolerating regulation of free speech. And if it falls in other boxes, maybe not the government, but it might be a private party like Facebook or Twitter or YouTube. So I found it to be very useful. Uh, let me just uh, say for our listeners, I'm speaking, interviewing Cass Sunstein, the Walmsley University professor at Harvard and author of Liars, Falsehoods, and Free Speech in an Age of Deception. So we're delighted to have Cass with us. Uh, let's, let's pursue that distinction between government action and private party action. You have a unique view on that because you're both a lawyer and interested in Supreme Court activity, but also a consultant to uh, Facebook and the new social media. Uh, are their obligations different or are the is there room to censor different? 
Yes. So I should say that while I've served as a consultant for Facebook on a few occasions, now that I'm a government employee, <laughs> I'm not a consultant to Facebook. <laughs> And uh, I'm actually pretty hard on Facebook in some ways, though I certainly respect uh, particularly their efforts in recent years to do better than they've done before. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk maybe about law in a way that I think will resonate for maybe even more for non-lawyers than for lawyers. And then let's talk about principle. So mm -hmm. the Constitution applies to the government and it doesn't apply to private entities. So if... Um, uh, some private university in California makes some decisions about what it's going to allow to be said on campus. That's not like uh, Washington, D.C. deciding what's going to be allowed on campus. Mm -hmm. If the New York Times says we're going to print op-eds by these people and not those people, that's how the New York Times runs its operation. Uh, if the government says we're going to allow in New York certain speakers and not others, if the mayor says that because we like certain speakers and we don't like others, that, that's not allowed. That's, that's the government. And that's kind of built into our constitution. Uh, in terms of principle, the basic idea that supports this is that one way that private entities exercise their freedom is by saying and allowing statements as they see fit. So if you set up a little uh, publishing house and you say, I'm going to be you know, the conservative publishing house, we're going to only going to publish conservative stuff. That's how you exercise your freedom. If you create a university, let's say a private university, that's a religious university of an identifiable kind, and that's what you're inculcating, that's how freedom is exercised. And if we, and my dog really appreciates that and is barking his enthusiasm about that proposition. He was objecting to that point. Or maybe he was objecting. Maybe my dog didn't like that idea. Okay, but if you, if you shift from, uh, let's say, small private entities to media providers, it, it gets a little bit harder. So some people are nervous about the idea that, let's say, Facebook or Twitter gets a lot of freedom to decide what they're going to allow on their on their platform. And I think that nervousness is understandable, meaning Facebook isn't like a small college or a little club. It's big. And it's really important. And the same is true of Twitter. So to say they should be more respectful of diversity and liberty to go in all sorts of directions than, let's say, a little club, that makes complete sense. Still, Facebook isn't the government. And if Facebook says we're not going to allow certain kinds of sexually explicit speech on our platform, that is somewhere between good and okay, in my view. Mm -hmm. Whereas if the US government said we're not going to allow, let's say, D.H. Lawrence or some things you could find really easily on Netflix, we're not going to allow those in the United States, that would really be an interference with freedom. So this is a long-winded way of saying that private entities just aren't bound by the First Amendment of the Constitution. That's on balance a good thing, that large speech providers should be respectful of freedom generally, but they aren't constrained and they shouldn't be constrained with quite the uh, tenacity 
let's say, with which we should constrain governments as regulators of speech. And so you think that the movement for declaring Facebook or Twitter or others as, in some sense, a utility or in some sense, a, a global platform that is fundamental uh, is uh, misdirected? Well, it depends on what's concretely meant by that. Mm -hmm. if, if, if you want to say that Facebook should be treated as a utility for some purposes, such that regulation would be acceptable for it, that wouldn't be acceptable for, let's say, a local newspaper. Mm -hmm. That's very thinkable. And I think Mark Zuckerberg has actually called for regulation of Facebook. And my hometown newspaper, before I moved to Washington, the Boston Globe, hasn't called for government regulation of the Boston Globe. And, and that makes some sense. But to say that Facebook should be subject to the same strictures with respect to speech that the US government is subject to, I think that wouldn't make any sense. That if there are some kinds of, let's say, falsehoods or bullying or personal attacks that occur on Facebook's platform, it's legitimate for Facebook to say, we don't allow that here. Whereas it wouldn't be legitimate for, let's say, the state of California to say, we wouldn't allow that here. There are some forms of bullying and ugly speech that are part of a system of free expression. And the best response is not censorship or punishment, but social norms and a program. So all that makes sense. But Facebook and Twitter, I think legitimately can say, look, we're a private platform. You bully people on our platform. Uh, we're gonna stop that bullying. And if you keep out and keep at it, uh, then you're gonna have to go to some other platform. Are you arguing that, um, I'm thinking of the debate over um, uh, provision 530 currently and exempting platforms from any liability for the speech that occurs there, that there is some middle ground uh, between uh, the multi-platforms that have don't have the power and the scale that Facebook and, and Twitter and YouTube may have, uh, but that for the, the YouTubes and the Facebooks uh, and Twitters, some kind of regulation is legitimate, as well as some type of greater expectation of, if you like, ethical behavior or guidance or uh, regulation by the entity itself of speech. Yes, exactly. So there's a provision of federal law that helped launch the internet as we know it that gave uh, providers various things, including social media platforms, a degree of immunity that a newspaper or magazine wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. And the basic idea was, I'm going to simplify, but if you're running a large social media platform, you wouldn't be subject to the same restrictions that, let's say, a newspaper would be, partly because if you were, you'd be cabined and restricted because the number of things that are said on your platform is just so large that if you're subjected to a risk of zillions of dollars of liability, you're going to just going to shut things off or maybe shut yourself down. That's a crude version of the argument. I think we've learned that now to say that Facebook isn't liable for, let's say, libel, when the libel is drawn to Facebook's attention, 
that's probably too protective of the platform. So let's say there is on <coughs> Facebook a libel a statement about you or your best friend, and you or your best friend draw this to Facebook's attention and say, look, this is libelous. And Facebook says, uh, so sorry, too bad, uh, we're busy. Um, Facebook is on notice in the case I gave. Yes. And Facebook doesn't take it down, having been given notice, it's not at all clear it should be free from liability. It's not at all clear that that's in the national interest. Now, Facebook, I think, would be worried and legitimately that anyone can cry libel. So you'd need some sort of demonstration that there was libel. But once, a let's say, a credible demonstration was made or a sufficiently credible demonstration for Facebook to say, sorry, we need a court ruling or something, it's not at all clear that that's, that's the right approach. So th there's probably a space between if we're notified uh, and, you know, if you get a court order, uh, we'll take it down. And uh, do I have 30,000 people watching every single thing that comes across the platform each day? I can, have, I can, I can anticipate a debate over how many um, censors uh, or auditors or monitors should Facebook be expected to uh, hire? Uh, do you foresee that kind of debate? I do, and I think this will be a productive debate where reasonable people will disagree like this much and not this much. That is that the band of disagreement won't be that wide. And it, you know, it may be that a social media provider will have a self-interested position that on reflection is very hard to sustain. It might be that let's say uh, an advocacy group of another kind will be a little too zealous and have a position that isn't hard to sustain. And th those will be the boundaries and neither is, is the right one. And then we'll be looking here and anywhere maybe in here is a better place than uh, blanket immunity, which is basically where we are now. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a, a question a couple of people have asked about, you know, what else would you have these platforms do at this point? Do you have a prescription? If you were back in the consulting role, uh, what would you have these platforms do? I do. I think that the uh, focus on damaging falsehoods, which is part of where Facebook and Twitter have gone, is, is the right one. And that the uh, degree of uh, remedy for damaging falsehoods is too infrequent and too weak compared to where they will end up being, I believe, in a year or two. Uh, with respect to health and safety in particular. So the idea of focusing on harm is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, to say imminent harm is a requirement isn't clearly right. So if you know harm will happen, let's say in a month, is that not controllable if let's say it's a knowing falsehood? Uh, though if you knew it would happen in a day, it would be controllable. Mm -hmm. It's not clear that the imminence requirement is, is the right one. I'll give you another example that I think is, is a clean one, which is that Facebook relatively recently has said that certain kinds of deep fakes will be taken down, where if there's a manipulated media of using certain kinds of technology to, let's say, display a neighbor as doing something horrible, 
uh, that will be taken down. But uh, if it's not that technology, but it's some sort of more primitive, like 2012 rather than 2021 technology, mm -hmm. uh, they won't take it down, like the Nancy Pelosi video. Yeah, I don't think that's the right line. The technology isn't, in my view, shouldn't be decisive. And at, when I last checked Facebook's uh, uh, prohibition was if you show someone doing something, that they didn't do with the new technology, it will be taken down. I think that's good. But what if they show someone saying something that they never said? I, I, the recent Facebook uh, standards didn't take that down. And the difference between doing and saying, it seems to me that's very hard to sustain. So if you use technology to show someone saying something that's, let's say, horrific, Mm -hmm. And it's very credible because it's a technology that can make that look credible. Mm -hmm. uh, that, in my view, should be taken down also. It's a lie. Just a note for our listeners, you you deal very uh, uh, carefully with the question of deep fakes and doctored videos uh, in your book. So it's a particularly enlightening uh, kind of discussion, the problem of how to deal with those. Now, uh, with the government... The Supreme Court can step in and say, you've overstepped your bounds one way or another, if you're a state government or federal or whatever. With social media companies, if they don't hold to a standard, if a, if a major uh, platform like this doesn't hold to a standard that helps solve the problem of deep fakes or the problem of untruths, what accountability can we have as a society? over these big platforms? So there are three kinds of answers, if you'll forgive that I have three rather than one. So there's- Good, good, good academic. You either have a matrix or you have three to five points. So there's the common law. So there's old law, which is judge made, which makes it uh, unacceptable to purvey certain kinds of falsehoods. So the most obvious example is libel. So if uh, on social media there is libel, unless there's immunity, the common law prohibitions kick in. So that's number one. Number two is things can come from state legislatures. And I think we will increasingly see things that are designed to protect health and safety or democracy or individuals against uh, damaging falsehoods. And that's something we're really just starting to get serious about, but uh, that's a very good conversation about. And the yes. third is federal law, where members of Congress have been thinking what kind of federal prohibitions, they could be things, this would be very, very rough, and I think there should be a presumption against it, but criminal prohibitions. And if not criminal prohibitions, maybe uh, civil actions where people who are harmed can bring suit. And for the civil libertarians out there, you might be getting scared. And I think that's a very honorable fear. But don't be that scared in the sense that if people are putting up on, let's say, uh, Twitter, um, uh, buy my product, um, if you put this skincare product on your face, then you're always going to look young and you'll never get skin cancer. And that's false. That is, that is fraud. Now, what is it state law fraud, federal law fraud? 
uh, these are extremely good questions, to say that there should be state and federal prohibitions through the law of fraud against that kind of thing. That has uh, a long and honorable history to it. Mm -hmm. One more question uh, before we leave the, the, uh, these platforms, um, and that is, uh, uh, should every one of the major platforms have the kind of appeals board such as um, Facebook has created to raise questions about whether something should be taken down, labeled, et cetera. Uh, and I gather they, uh, Facebook's is now considering whether to ban Donald Trump permanently from the platform. It's a really good question. I taught at the University of Chicago for a long time. And one thing you have to say every morning and every night at the University of Chicago is one size does not fit all. Mm -hmm. University of Chicago is very uh, free market oriented. So I wouldn't yes. want to say that every social media provider should have uh, an entity like what Facebook has. Um, whether Facebook's entity is adequate to the problem, let's say, of falsehood on the platform, or whether it is an improvement merely, uh, I'm not clear. Uh, I do feel it's, it's a good idea. Uh, but I feel pretty clear that whether it's things like Holocaust denial, stuff about vaccination, uh, stuff about um, uh, democratic processes, the independent tribunal isn't going to do enough. Mm -hmm. um, I want to go back to um, government, where you expect the first challenges, if you like, to uh, free speech to come from in terms of uh, government action? Um, what might be the test cases over the next 10 to 15 years that might make use of uh, an amicus brief from you <laughs> that is an evolution of this book? What do you expect to be the challenges? Well, since, uh, I hope you'll forgive, since I'm in government myself now, I'm gonna be very cautious about this. Certainly. And say that there's a lot of action, not from the standpoint of the federal government, from the standpoint of government with respect to libel. And Justice Thomas has said very prominently, he thinks New York Times against Sullivan is wrong. Um, he believes that the First Amendment should be understood to mean what it originally meant. Mm -hmm. And on, on his in historical terms, he's almost certainly correct. The, the uh, understanding of the free speech principle by the Supreme Court in 1964 way overshot how the original understanding by James Madison and others was. So a point, a historical point for Justice Thomas. I'm not an originalist. I don't think the constitution should be understood to mean what it originally meant. But I do think Justice Thomas has put a very powerful argument on the table, which is that the law of libel needs to be rethought. So where I would expect to see some very interesting challenges is where uh, state officials, let's say, not federal, say that, you know, the damage you get for, let's say, negligent falsehood that's really harmful to someone, mm -hmm. the damage award you get is $1. So you get a dollar. Mm -hmm. Would the Supreme Court say that's unconstitutional? I really hope not. Or suppose some state says, you don't get a dollar, you get a penny, but you also get a right of retraction. If you can demonstrate that the statement was A, false, and B, 
very injurious to reputation. Then the person has to take it back and pay you a penalty. Is that an offense to the free speech principle? That I think some judges would find that a very interesting uh, question without an obvious answer that that law is unconstitutional. Fascinating. Um, we've, I, I want to explore one other dimension of the book that uh, we got a question on as well, and that was your concept of alternatives to regulation of free speech. And you said there may be other less onerous kinds of solutions, and one is counter speech, um, uh, one is the labeling and warnings and disclaimers uh, that you talked about, although that was more for uh, private issues. One may be disclosure and retraction, I suppose, that would be less onerous than huge penalties. Um, uh, and obviously for the privates, it's the use of the choice uh, structure, uh, which might suppress those kinds of uh, postings. Um, uh, are there enough, if you like, measures short of banning certain aspects of free speech that we can rely on in enough cases? Uh, we're we're going to get there. So this is one of the most exciting things, I think, in the history of the practice of free expression. And it's really recent. Mm -hmm. So what governments haven't been able to think about is uh, instead of censoring or requiring people to pay money, just require a warning accompanying the statement saying this is false or require uh, uh, a diminution in, let's say, circulation of the thing. How can you even think about that in 1950? Yes. Very hard. But today it's really easy. You can think on Facebook that the news feed just isn't going to have this very much available to people. They can find it, but it's not going to just show up. Or you could have something like what I believe Facebook now does, which is to say false before you see the thing. Yes. Now that's on behavioral science grounds. That's smart because if you see the thing and then you see it's false, you might think, oh, maybe it's true. But if you see false first, that is a kind of inoculation. That's a really good thing to do. Or you can do some things like what some social media providers are doing, which is providing like truthful information very vividly right at the top. Now, it might be always there. Or it might be there if you're looking at some kinds of things. You're, let's say, I'll choose the obvious one, the pandemic. You're looking for information on the pandemic. And then on the front, it'll just tell you a lot of stuff that's truthful on the pandemic without censoring stuff that isn't truthful. We, um, one of the listeners has asked the question about whether education has a role uh, in the solution to the problem of falsity and lies and such. Are there ways of inoculating ourselves or uh, the younger generation uh, not to believe everything they read on uh, social media platforms? Is, uh, is education in some sense a, a solution? And if so, how do we go about it? As an educator until relatively recently, I have to say the answer to that is yes. Um, uh, uh, recently, and I hope future educator. So uh, that's a very important and good point. That if we have an educational culture, particularly perhaps in high school and even before, which uh, gives people a sense of what's out there and the markers of truth and falsity, 
that that helps. Uh, I think it's it's a part of the picture. It's not the picture. And I'll give you some data that helps explain why. If someone says you know something terrible, let's say about a politician, and then follows the statement with the following sentence, that was false. Mm -hmm. uh, people will remember even weeks and months later that the false statement, and in part of their mind, they'll wonder whether it was true. It's, it's called truth bias. Mm -hmm. And it means that if we hear something false, even if we're told in real time that it's false, in part of our minds, we'll think of it as maybe or even probably. And that suggests that liars can be very successful, even if their lies are corrected, which suggests a cautionary note about my point about the less restrictive remedies. And it certainly is a cautionary note about education. Even, I'll give you an example. It's a little political, so forgive. Uh, all the talk about Secretary Clinton's emails were in a way more effective than they should have been because people who believed the story about her emails was false. Many of them, even, in, even they in some part of their minds were thinking, what, what about those emails? So some part of their head was infected by what I'm going to claim, I believe it, but the fact that I believe it is neither or there, there was affected by a claim that was um, either false or much more accusatory than reality warranted. Mm -hmm. So you've, you've had quite a commitment to behavioral science uh, as it reflects on both law, economics, and so on. Um, a couple of questions regarding the, the problem of echo chambers and tribal sources of information and so on. Uh, are there particular ways we might think about the falsehoods that spread within echo chambers? Completely. So uh, some social media platforms have given mounting attention to the problem of demonstrable misinformation. And that's good. One, neglecting the problem of the echo chamber. They're, of course, overlapping problems, but they're not the same. If you live in a, let's say, a communications universe where you're just constantly told various opinions, not facts, various opinions, mm -hmm. uh, you'll probably get really confident and really charged up. And uh, that might not be warranted because if you heard the diversity of things out there, you'd be more humble and maybe more respectful of people who don't think as you do. Mm -hmm. That kind of confident charged upness can in worst cases cause violence. And in cases that aren't as bad as that cause a terrible failure of mutual understanding. And uh, the echo chamber problem where people are sorting themselves into communities like-minded others, uh, that needs to be addressed. And to see uh, an architecture online that algorithms people, I'm using algorithm as a verb here, that algorithms people into a little information cocoon or a community of you and you and you when all the yous are similar, that, that, that's a problem. It's a problem for the individual and it's a social problem. A couple of final questions. One is, is misinformation and lying something that will always be with us, or is there a battle that somehow we can win here, or 
will there be the next generation of deep fakes and the next generation of of evil people who deliberately tell lies? Uh, is this a uh, an escalation kind of problem fighting the next uh, weapon system such as we had during the Cold War? Or is this something we can really make headway against? There's a, there's a great psychologist named Amos Diversky who said, I'm an optimist. And the reason I'm an optimist is it's rational to be optimistic, because if you're a pessimist, you suffer twice. <laughs> so I'm following Diversky, and I'm going to be an optimist here. We'll never drive, and we never should drive, the level of falsehoods or lies down to zero. My favorite Supreme Court Justice, Robert Jackson, said compulsory unification of opinion achieves only the unanimity of the graveyard. <laughs> that would be my nominee, by the way, for the greatest sentence any Supreme Court Justice ever wrote. And if we had no lies or and no falsehoods, life would be, uh, what's the right word, not human. So lies and falsehoods are part of the human condition. And if you dislike lies and falsehoods, really too much, you probably don't have a sense of humor. <laughs> They're part of life. But, but we can uh, do better battle against the harmful ones. And right now, with respect to social media platforms, we are doing better than we were even two or three years ago. And uh, uh, if we try, two or three years from now, we'll be thinking, boy, in 2021, mm -hmm. they were so far behind where we are now. If I can ask a last question, and it's uh, it's uh, raised here on the uh, uh, readers' questions, uh, listeners' questions, but also I got the same question from uh, two of my three children who are social scientists, which is about your earlier book um, Nudge with uh, Dick Thaler, and um, uh, the question is 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 the basic principle in that book, which is now twelve years ago, that if we set up conditions of decision right, we're likely to get more socially positive outcomes. Um, you made very broad assertions in the book that uh, if I set up the conditions right, people will choose things right. Is that as broadly applicable? Do you think today the, the principle uh, holds as broadly as you argued in that book? Uh, I think I have a fresh recollection because Thaler and I have just done second edition of the book, so I've mm -hmm. uh, spent a lot of time with it between basically June 2020 and January 2021. And the claim of the book is that uh, choices are made against an architecture. So if you go on a website, it will have an architecture. What's the font? What do you see first? What do you see last? Is there music? Mm -hmm. uh, if you go into a grocery store, are there candies really visible? Is there bacon there? Or is there are there carrots and soup? And the architecture will nudge you. Uh, a car will have nudges that might go beep, beep, beep when you're about to hit the tree right behind you or which might not, which might have uh, certain signals if you're crossing uh, a line on the highway or about to hit someone on the highway, um, that nudges are uh, all around us. A GPS is, is a nudge. Uh, it preserves freedom of choice, but it steers you in the direction that you have said you want to go. A calorie label is a nudge, a warning, this product contains shrimp, that's a nudge. 
a automatic enrollment in a healthcare plan that is a nudge. Uh, so long as freedom is preserved, it's a nudge. I think it wouldn't be right to say, and Taylor and I don't say, that if you have good nudges, you guarantee good outcomes. People might be nudged to eat healthy, but decide, you know what? Health isn't what I care about. Deliciousness is what I care about. And that might be the right choice for them. Even if it isn't, they, they are entitled, we think, to ignore the nudge. So nudges are super helpful often. They save lives. They've done a great deal of good in the last couple of, uh, of, of years with respect to anti-poverty efforts and anti-smoking efforts. Um, but they won't prevent error, and, and that's okay. Errors are okay. As, as we as individuals make decisions and as the government and large platforms make decisions, we'll look to learn uh, continually from your writing, Cass. So uh, I want to thank you for uh, being so helpful to us today. Thanks to Cass Sunstein, author of Liars, Falsehoods, and Free Speech in an Age of Deception. We encourage you to pick up a copy of Cass's new book at your local bookstore. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club efforts, please uh, visit www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Kirk Hansen. Thank you for being with us and see you next time. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.